Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real-life behind-the-scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. Before we jump in today, I want to wish those of you in Canada a happy Thanksgiving, and I'll share that today is my birthday. Now, my birthday is usually a pretty low-key event. I have a couple of traditions, like ordering in my favorite Chinese food for dinner and watching a movie in my jammies. I don't tend to want for a lot, other than a clean house. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, hubby. And if you know me, you'll know that I'm the kind of person who likes to give. Shocking, I know. And that I thrive when those around me are thriving. So... For my birthday, I decided, because I can, to do a blitz giveaway of my full resilience training program, Beating the Breaking Point, designed specifically for first responders and frontline workers. If you don't know about the program, check out our show notes from today's episode or Google Beating the Breaking Point Lindsay Foss, and you can get all the details of what's included. From now until 11.59 p.m. on Monday, October 18th, you can snag the course for only $99. I promise you it's worth every penny. I put my heart and soul into developing it to support burnout prevention and reduction for those who sacrifice so much for our communities. If you go to register for the program this week, use coupon code BIRTHDAY and get to work investing in your wellness. Happy birthday to me. Today, we're continuing our series on Therapy 101, focusing today on where to look for a counselor, what to look for in a counselor, what to ask a potential counselor and how to go about doing that, and what to expect from counseling. This episode is part two in a four-part series, so if you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, please make sure to do that. Look for season two, episode five. Let's start today with where to look for a counselor. Different people stumble into counseling through different routes, and it's important to acknowledge that there are lots of ways to find a professional support person. Certainly, there is Google. How did we ever live without it? The great thing about Google is the ability to find someone conveniently located to you or to search for someone who specializes in a particular area of need. The downside to Google and scanning clinicians' websites is that it doesn't disclose a lot about the person's personality or whether they'll be a fit for you. I have seen my share of fantastic authors who sound great on paper but aren't the best in the therapy room, and others who are phenomenal clinicians who can't talk up their skills in writing to get someone in the door. 
There are online counseling specific directories that can help a bit. They tend to ask specific fill in the blank questions that allow prospective clients to compare and contrast clinician skills, interests, and so on a bit more side to side. Some of these directories are offered by professional associations, which means that they have some amount of safety in knowing that the clinicians represented on the directory meet some minimum criteria for education, training, and experience. I know I shared at length in last week's episode about how counseling is not regulated in many areas, so this might seem confusing. Professional associations are not the same as regulatory colleges. Professional associations are run by the group they represent. An example of this is the BC Association of Clinical Counselors. I register with them, meeting their inclusion criteria, and I pay them annually to be allowed to represent myself as a registered clinical counselor. They have an ethical guideline that I'm required to abide by to remain a member in good standing, but the guidelines are formed and enforced within the group, and the only ultimate outcome of failing to abide is to be barred from membership, but can't strip me of my ability to continue to practice since the profession overall is unregulated where I live and work. A regulatory body is intended for public safety to ensure that practitioners meet expectations, and it offers recourse if expectations are not met, including being barred from continuing to practice altogether. Professional associations' role is to support their members, but they do offer a layer of protection to the public in having some specific criteria for acceptance. You can also seek a referral from your GP or learn about someone through word of mouth from a previous client you're friends with. Other professionals are often connected to counselors they've worked in parallel with, like your lawyer, chiropractor, naturopath, or other paramedical professionals tend to know clinicians whom they trust to refer to. You can also connect with some nonprofit or government-funded agencies for referrals or direction, including Crime Victim Assistance, Ministry of Child and Family Development, Community Mental Health, Legal Aid, and First Nations Health. These groups tend to be well-connected to their respective community organizations and privately operating mental health professionals and can suggest who might be a good fit for your needs. I'll include links to some directories in the show notes if you need help getting started. Okay, let's move on to what to look for when looking for a counselor. I've mentioned that the counseling profession is having a bit of an identity crisis at this point in history and is composed of a wide variety of individuals calling themselves counselors. Now, this is not to say that individuals using the term counselor who do not have a master's degree and years of experience are without their merit. For clients seeking more simplified supports or life coaching kinds of support, this can be an alternative that is sometimes more fiscally manageable and may meet the need. Meanwhile, for those seeking support for issues that involve mental health concerns like anxiety, depression, PTSD, and so on, or issues that have been chronic or pervasive, it's likely more appropriate to find a counselor who's been trained in assessment and treatment protocols for these issues. So what should you be looking for? Well, tip number one is education. The main professional associations across Canada require that their counselors have a master's degree in psychology. Individuals who have completed this level of education will have done a four-year undergraduate degree as well as a master's program, typically between two and three years in length. These programs include training in assessment, treating psychological disorders, working with individuals, couples, families, children, 
and working with a variety of wellness concerns, including relationship issues, work issues, addiction concerns, grief and loss, and so on. These programs also include intensive practicum and internship experiences where students complete a given number of hours directly counseling clients under the supervision of a professional. Tip number two, you may have guessed it, look for registration. You want to see letters after their name. In areas that are regulated, this is taken care of for you. But for those in unregulated areas, look for registration with a professional association which helps to protect the client. Finding a registered counselor acts as a bit of a safeguard. You know that they had to pass specific criteria to get registered, which means that they have the fundamental things they need to effectively help you. Belonging to a professional association requires your counselor to abide by specific ethical guidelines, and it gives clients a place to voice any concerns or complaints. In addition, belonging to an association means that your counselor is getting regular information about training, resources, and other information that allows them to be even better at their job. Tip number three is be specific about what you want. This is twofold. First, be clear about what kind of clinician you're looking for. Check with your extended medical coverage to see what credentials they cover and look specifically for someone who meets that. It stinks to go see someone and connect with them only to discover that you can't get reimbursed for those sessions after the fact. Clinicians do not know which medical programs cover which credentials, so you have to do this piece of diligence to ensure that you're finding someone who will be covered. Second, be clear about what you're needing counseling for and find someone who specializes in that area. Just like there are GPs who are generalist medical practitioners, and then there are specialists who focus on a specialized area of medical practice, therapists similarly have generalists who work with a range of needs but aren't necessarily deeply versed or trained in any given one, as well as highly specialized clinicians who invest in dedicating themselves to a specific area of treatment. So if you're looking for relationship counseling, don't go to someone who tends to focus on depression. If you're looking for counseling around a recent or past trauma, don't go to someone who prefers to do career counseling. If your work factors in as a significant aspect of what you hope to work on in therapy, I would really encourage you to seek out someone who has a specialization in working with trauma, as well as experience working with other first responders and frontline workers, as you are a somewhat unique demographic and tend to benefit from someone who gets your unique challenges. All right, you've narrowed down your search and found a few counselors who you feel pretty good about. What comes next? Well, next I want you to anchor to who you are in this process. As you navigate into contacting counselors and setting up initial sessions, I want you to remember that in this process, you are the consumer of a service. This service is personal and intimate and you have a right to be choosy to be informed, and to make choices that are right for you. I find that all too often, clients come in nervous to ask questions or in some way question my expertise. When we enter into scenarios like this, we tend to see the clinician as an authority figure, which is fair to an extent. They are an authority on the subject matter they've studied so rigorously. Meanwhile, you are the expert on you. You know what feels like a fit and what doesn't. You know what you need to feel safe and supported. 
and you have every right to bring your expertise on you into the therapeutic process. In fact, it's the only way it will be effective. Think of it like hiring someone to clean your home or visiting a hairstylist for the first time or taking your precious car to a new mechanic. These are all service providers who are skilled in what they do. They are the expert, all things relative, in their respective professions, likely as compared to your own skill, ability, or knowledge in these same areas. When we utilize these kinds of service providers, we tend to have expectations and we evaluate the service provider's capacity to meet or exceed these expectations. If our expectations are disappointed, we'll tend not to continue bringing our business to that service provider. Counselors are service providers too, and you're allowed to ask questions the same way you would with other service providers. We'll talk about what kinds of questions to ask in just a minute. You're also allowed to decide that someone isn't a good fit for you after the first session or the first few sessions. Often when we're seeking this kind of support, we need to be advocates for ourselves. Don't be afraid to advocate with your counselor. If they're good at what they do, they will want to partner with you in advocating for you, and they won't be at all insulted or bothered by all of your questions. They'll want you to express these to help facilitate you feeling safe. So what kinds of questions should you be asking a therapist and when and how should you bring these up? Well, let's start with the when and how. Some clinicians offer a free brief over the phone consultation in advance of booking an appointment. Not everyone does this though. If you've found someone who offers this, you can use this time to ask some of these questions, enough to satisfy your hunch that this is likely a person you'll connect with. If the clinician you're interested in seeing doesn't offer this, then you may be able to ask some preliminary questions via email or while setting up the first appointment, but then save the remainder of your questions for the first session. I will say that often prospective clients feel that clinicians should offer a free first session or time for them to feel clear about whether it's a right fit before they pay for ongoing services. And I find this a bit concerning. While I appreciate that it can be hard to pay for services that don't end up feeling like the right fit, the clinician's time is still valuable. It's how they feed their family. You likely wouldn't ask any other service provider for something like this. A free house cleaning to see if they do a good job, a free haircut to see if you like how they do it. Recognizing the value of the clinician's time, even if you don't return to use them again, is really important. To some extent, those in mental health will tend to be taken advantage of because they care and genuinely want to help. Please value their hearts and efforts and lengthy education and be respectful of these pieces when asking for any concessions in setting up a consult or a first session. When it comes to key questions you should be asking your therapist, there are two main groups of questions. I'm going to group these into practical and professional. On the practical side of things, there are several fairly straightforward questions you will likely want to ask. These might include questions regarding their qualifications, like what level of education do you have? Where did you go to school? How many years of experience have you had? Are you registered? With which association are you registered? This is going to be especially important in those areas that are not regulated. Additional practical questions like how much do you charge? How long are your sessions? Do you build to insurance companies? How do you expect payment? Where are you located? Do you offer telehealth sessions? And so on 
can also be helpful to ask in advance of meeting for the first time. Also, if you're seeking a counselor who uses a specific kind of therapeutic approach like EMDR, OEI, body therapies, play therapy, etc., you may want to ask them about their specific training in that approach, as many of these require additional training beyond their master's degree. When it comes to more professional questions, some of my favorites are asking about their counseling style. For instance, are they really directive or do they collaborate with you? Do they do a lot of teaching skills or do they focus on processing feelings? Also, ask about their theoretical orientation. I know that might sound kind of technical. The answer to this question may feel a little bit over the heads of some people who aren't into psychobabble, but you can say something like, can you tell me a bit about how you shape your treatment in a user-friendly kind of way? The answer to this question will tell you a lot about what you can expect from the counselor in your work together. Another way to approach this is to tell the counselor about what problems you're experiencing and ask for an idea of how they would approach these issues. It's okay to ask the therapist whether they have a background working with first responders or with the specific type of concern you're coming in with, like PTSD, for example. You can ask about what additional training they've had to support your specific types of concerns and ask about what kinds of successes and challenges they've had with other clients with similar concerns. Don't worry, I'm going to list all of these questions in our show notes, so don't feel like you have to write them down frantically. I should have said that before I listed them. If there are any other questions you would find helpful to feel clear about expectations or would promote your sense of safety with this person on an ongoing basis as you work together, don't hesitate to ask them. They work for you. You get to have a voice in that space and actually need to have a voice in that space for the process to really work for you. Did you know that research has shown that therapeutic alliance is the strongest determinant of the successful outcome of therapy? Therapeutic alliance is the connection between client and counselor, and it's defined by three main pieces. First, agreement on therapeutic goals, i.e. why you're coming for therapy. Second, agreement on the tasks that make up therapy, i.e. the steps toward your goals. And third, the quality of bond between therapist and client. When these three pieces work together, the likelihood of success in therapy is far greater, and it is the strongest predictor of success in therapy. Okay, so we've found a counselor, refined our options to those we think are the best fit, and started connecting to make sure it's all the Goldilocks things just right. But for many who are new to therapy and believe it involves lying back on a chaise lounge while some stuffy old dude scribbles notes about how your mom failed you, let's take a moment to talk about what to actually expect when you start going to counseling. Now, every counselor approaches things a little differently, but on the whole, you should be able to expect a few key things. If these are not present, ask questions. In your first session, you should expect the counselor to present you with some kind of contract or agreement that outlines the counselor's expectations, such as payment, what will happen if you no-show or cancel at the last minute, and so on, as well as the rights you have to confidentiality and the limits to confidentiality. Your rights are to have your information kept confidential except when there is a risk or suspected risk of harm to a child 
when there's a threat of harm to yourself or to someone else, such as threatening to commit suicide or homicide, but not restricted to these alone, and where required by law, which becomes a factor if you're involved in an active court case, like some kind of family law thing or something, um, as counselor notes are able to be subpoenaed. Besides the confidentiality agreement, many counselors will also use the first session to discuss any other stakeholders in your care, like your doctor, psychiatrist, a mental health worker or social worker, and may discuss with you the possibility of filling out a form that will allow your counselor to have contact with these other professionals in order to provide the most effective care possible. Once these formalities are complete, the remainder of the first session is often an information gathering time. The counselor may take notes while you talk or may have an intake form with specific questions they require to have answered. These questions may include information regarding past counseling, other stakeholders, it can be helpful to bring a list of names and contact information for these people, medication, it's a great idea to bring a list of medications that you're on and the dosage, your family dynamic, like kids, your spouse, and so on, and questions regarding the presenting concerns that have brought you to counseling. If you're receiving counseling through an insurance company or other funding, you'll likely have a specific number of sessions being paid for, which you'll also want to discuss with your counselor so they can tailor treatment to your timeline. This may also be the time when the counselor will tell you a bit more about themselves and their approach, and it's a great time to ask any other questions that you might have. After the first session, subsequent sessions will typically follow a basic pattern of checking in regarding how things have been going and then moving into the specific work around goals that you've outlined. You can expect that your counselor will continually check in with you regarding how your goals are being met. You can also expect your counselor to refer you to other resources or supports where they see fit in order to provide you with optimal care. You can expect that your counselor will act respectfully, but will challenge you to make changes that may not always be comfortable. Above all else, you should expect yourself to assess your own progress and be aware of whether you're making the gains you're wanting to make. If it seems like you're not making progress or have stalled, try discussing this with your counselor or consider finding another counselor. If your therapist is trained in specific treatment interventions like EMDR, which stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing, neurofeedback, OEI, which is observed experiential integration, and so on, you can expect them to discuss this treatment with you and walk you through how they would apply it in their work with you before they begin applying these skills. Do ask for additional information and ask questions about any treatment intervention. They should be able to clarify and identify why they think this would be helpful for you, how it will look, what to expect, and should be able to point you to additional resources where you can learn more if you wanted to. You're allowed to decline interventions that don't feel like a fit for you, or try an intervention and then ask to stop if you're finding that it's not helpful for you. Your clinician is skilled at a lot of things, but we are not mind readers, and your feedback is really important to help guide the process and ensure that we're tailoring your treatment to meet your needs. Don't hesitate to speak up. I hope that this sets you up with a roadmap for how to proceed forward in connecting with professional support. I know it can feel like a lot, and on the front end, it can be, but it's worth it. You are worth investing in, and it can be hard to do it alone. So even if you hit some stumbling blocks and getting connected, don't give up. I hope you'll come back and join me next week when I'll be chatting with ER nurse and author of The View from the Wrong Side of the Day, T.C. Randall, 
as well as with retired RCMP staff sergeant with the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team and creator of the blog FuelForFirstResponders.com, Jen Pound. Our interviews with each of these two earlier this year were some of our most listened to episodes. So I've invited them both to chat and I can hardly wait for you to hear their insights on the hard and the hopeful of therapy as survivors of occupational stress injuries who have navigated the therapy scene themselves. Also, please check out our one week birthday special of Beating the Breaking Point. Check out the show notes or visit our page to register before the end of day on Monday, October 18th to get the seven part online resilience training program that I developed specifically for first responders and frontline workers for only $99 using coupon code BIRTHDAY. Oh, and before I forget, consider this your reminder that the Self-Care Dare five-day challenge for first responders and frontline workers is reopening for registration in one week. Registration opens October 19th and will close November 1st at 11.59 p.m. The Dare kicks off on November 2nd for those who register. Registration is only $10 and includes five days of video lessons around five key domains for self-care, bonus resources and worksheets to develop a bomb-proof and sustainable self-care plan, access to our private Facebook group to connect, problem-solve, and hone our skills, and fun prizes along the way to keep you pushing forward. If you are needing to up your self-care game, join us and take the dare. Watch for posts on our social media and website next week when registration opens, or go onto our podcast page right now by Googling Behind the Line Lindsay and click to join our waitlist where you'll get notified the minute that registration opens. As always, please reach out and connect if you have any questions or feedback. I love hearing from you and shaping this podcast to echo your needs and interests. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Lindsay A. Foss, or you can email me at support at thrive-life.ca. Do check out our show notes for this series and share with those you know. Until next time, stay safe.